I'm Ayla Ellison, and you're listening to The Top Line, brought to you by Fierce Pharma and Fierce Biotech. The antifungal agent, amphotericin B, is highly effective against a wide range of deadly fungi, and resistance is rare, even after decades of use. But it comes with a virtual guarantee of kidney damage, earning it the nickname Amphoterrible. Now, a better alternative might be on the way. Helen Flourish from Fierce Biotech Research spoke with Dr. Martin Burke, a chemistry professor and researcher at the University of Illinois and the founder of antifungal startup Sfunga Therapeutics to get the story behind the new drug's design, its path to the clinic, and how it could influence the next generation of antimicrobials. Here they are. Dr. Burke, thank you so much for being here today. We are so excited to speak with you. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah. So to kick things off, let's get a big question out of the way. Your team's come up with this alternative drug to an antifungal called amphotericin B. Why is this such a big deal? Unfortunately, fungal infections kill a lot of people every year, more than a million, in fact. And the problem is only getting worse with climate change. Fungi are becoming better able to unfortunately cause some of these problems in more parts of the world. And Lots of people, unfortunately, end up in immunocompromised situations, uh, including people, for example, with cancer and uh, those who've had transplants, HIV, AIDS, uh, and many other kind of medical procedures that ultimately lead someone to end up in a vulnerable state. So it's a big problem. And unfortunately, like many other areas of antimicrobials, resistance to most of the drugs that we have available has also become uh, very prominent. And so it's a problem that's already a big challenge, but unfortunately, it's only getting worse. And so we need better medicines and we need them now. Okay. So what exactly is amphotericin B? And, you know, you mentioned obviously that it's an antifungal, but tell me about the specific indications. Sure. So this is a remarkable example of a gift from nature. Like many of our best medicines, these are, this is a natural product. So it evolved over hundreds of millions of years of evolution and probably more. And it's a compound that is created by a bacterium that kills fungi. You know, they're battling it out on the molecular scale and they come up with these kind of chemical warfare agents that we borrow and turn them into medicines. And it's got some really great features as a drug, which make it so important in clinical medicine. One of them is it's very potent and very effective at killing fungi. Okay. The bacteria worked very hard to make that the case. It's also... Uh, remarkably broad spectrum. What that means is it, it kills almost any fungus that you throw at it, which is really important because in clinical medicine, many times you don't actually know which fungus is causing the infection in time to be selective. So it's very important that antifungals actually have broad scope. And perhaps most remarkably is that despite its use for more than half a century in the clinic, resistance to amphotericin is very rare. Okay. So it's one of these very special rare antimicrobial agents that has somehow found a way to evade resistance. Okay. So for all of those reasons, it's a very important medicine in the clinic, uh, especially if someone has a very serious life-threatening infection where the fungal infection has kind of gone throughout their whole body uh, or deeply invaded some of their tissues. So we call these invasive fungal infections. Uh, And unfortunately, many times it's the last resort, okay, because nothing else will work. And so doctors use amphotericin. 
The problem is it's extremely toxic. It's been rightly termed amphoterrible in the clinic. I remember when I was a medical student, uh, both patients and doctors alike uh, referred to it as amphoterrible. And it has a lot of side effects, including some immediate effects, which is a kind of like an intense flu-like shake and bake phenomenon. Uh, but perhaps most important is that it's very toxic to the kidney. And this can be a very severe kidney toxicity that can become irreversible. And ultimately, it really ends up limiting. The doctor can only give so much where you have to choose between, you know, irreversibly harming the patient with their kidney versus trying to cure the infection. And so it's been a big limitation. The toxicity of amphotericin for more than half a century has precluded its very most effective use in the clinic. And this is the problem that we chose to tackle. I understand that kind of over the course of your research, you figured out that this drug doesn't necessarily work the way that scientists thought it did. So tell me a little bit about how you came to that eureka moment and how that led you to develop the alternative. So yes, as you indicate, it's long been thought and actually says in all the textbooks when I was a medical student that amphotericin kills cells primarily by forming channels in their membrane and causing the contents of the cell to leak out. This is the the permeable model, which has been kind of the primary model that everyone has focused on for a very long time. And we had a hunch that perhaps that mechanism was incorrect. We were very interested actually initially in this molecule precisely because it does form ion channels. That's a whole different story, but we've been developing that ion channel forming capacity in a different context to try to think about replacing missing protein ion channels with small molecule surrogates, almost like prostheses on the molecular scale. So it's a different kind of parallel story. It's led us to actually now a drug that's in the clinic being tested for cystic fibrosis, where you replace the missing CFTR anion channel with uh, kind of amphotericin-based channels that can restore the anion flow across the lung membrane. So it does form ion channels, but we had a hunch that was not how it was killing cells. And uh, I remember when I was uh, applying for academic positions, having read probably 5,000 papers on amphotericin and the mechanism, and it's been intensely studied, there were these hints. There were these hints in the literature that the mechanism was not correct. One of them was there a whole family of natural products that we call the polyene macrolides. Amphotericin is one of them, but there's many of these, hundreds now we know of. And some of them were much shorter than amphotericin, and they didn't form channels but yet they were still known to be antifungal agents. So this was very curious to us because oftentimes, you know, when nature develops a whole class of natural products, they all kind of work the same way. And so there was something missing and that some of these short ones that weren't forming channels were still acting like antifungals with very similar potencies actually to amphotericin. So that was one of the kind of key clues that got us to think, you know, maybe the mechanism is wrong. It does form channels, but that's not how it's killing cells. And we were intensely interested for two reasons. One, we wanted to separate the channel forming activity to do this molecular prosthetics thing. But also we say we understood that this was a really important unmet medical need. And if we could better understand the mechanism, hopefully we could rationally get rid of the toxicity and keep the good stuff. So this gave, made us very interested in just fundamentally understanding this class of natural products. Well, fast forward, we discovered that's not correct. The channel mechanism is not the primary mechanism by which this molecule kills cells. It actually self-assembles into a sponge-like complex that rapidly extracts sterols from both yeast and now we know human cells. And that sponge mechanism is actually how the primary killing takes place. Was that surprising to you to find that was how it worked? Yes, but it was very <laughs> exciting because it actually turned the lights on 
And when you're trying to find answers, of course, it's so much easier to do that when the lights are shining, right? And I think this is really where a society investing in basic science allows us to go in the lab and just do the fundamental research stuff. It makes a huge impact because it's when the lights come on, then we can start to become rational and try to take on a problem like trying to develop a non-toxic amphotericin and do it intentionally, as opposed to just trying a bunch of things and hoping it works. So walk me through the process after you've realized, okay, this is how this thing is working. What happened next? How did you guys ultimately come to your lead compound? So going all the way back to the kind of mechanism, the first time we really figured out that the mechanism was wrong, it goes all the way back to the paper in 2012. So my graduate student, Caitlin Gray, um, she had leveraged a modular synthesis approach that we had developed in the lab, uh, kind of where you could take this very complex molecule and make it almost Lego-like, piece by piece, uh, snapping the blocks together. And you could change the compound by just swapping out different blocks. And so she was able to use this approach to make a derivative that does not form ion channels, but still kills fungal cells. This was a really important breakthrough because it told us the mechanism is wrong, but we didn't really know exactly what it was. And so uh, what she also showed was that it was binding to sterols uh, in the yeast, and that activity alone was sufficient to kill them. So this led us to kind of speculate that maybe the sterile binding alone is the killing mechanism. Okay, but we didn't really know how that all worked. And so then we had a chance to team up with Chad Reinstra, who was here at Illinois at the time. He's now moved to Wisconsin, who is a world leading expert in a technique called solid state NMR spectroscopy, uh, which is really kind of like an MRI machine for molecules. It's the same physics and you can kind of see in lots of detail what these molecules look like not only by themselves, but we can also start to see what they look like kind of stacking together into higher order complexes. So we teamed up with Chadra and uh, and his group. And in 2014, we published another paper where we kind of first showed this sponge-like mechanism. And it was through the solid state NMR that we could actually start to see a picture of it. At that time, the picture was kind of murky. It was like a hazy, rough outline, but it gave us a strong sense that this aggregate was coming together on the surface of the yeast cell And we also could see that it was extracting the sterols. It's wild, like literally like a sponge would pull water off of a tabletop. It was like extracting the ergosterol molecule from yeast. That's kind of like their cholesterol. It's the yeast version of cholesterol, which the sterols are really important for the biology of the cells. If you take them away, the cell dies. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so we were then in a really exciting spot because we we knew the mechanism was this sponge. But we still weren't in a position to try to rationally improve the molecule because it was too hazy. The picture was too hazy to go after specific changes. So if you fast forward over the next almost 10 years, it takes a long time, working with Chad and many great students and postdocs and scientists in both of our labs, we finally got a very high resolution picture of this sterile sponge. And when we did that, we got it without first and then with the sterols bound, and that really put the lights on. So if if before we had kind of a faint, you know, single light bulb, now we had spotlight like shining right on the structure. And this actually gave us the chance to be very rational in how we would tweak the compound with a very clear goal, which is we wanted to keep all the good stuff and get rid of the toxicity. And ultimately that came down to figuring out how do we get this sponge to still extract ergosterol, which is the sterile in yeast, but not do the same thing with cholesterol, which is the same sterol in our kidneys and all the rest of our cells. And what we had shown was that same sponge mechanism is driving the toxicity by extracting cholesterol. So then we were on a mission 
to find a new compound that could still bind ergosterol and extract it, but not do the same thing for cholesterol. So tell me about how you went about hunting down that compound. There are two kind of key breakthroughs. The first was we found a spot that we could make a change and eliminate the cholesterol binding. And this was really exciting. It turned out to be the amphotericin's got two big parts. It's got a main kind of called a macrocycle, a big ring. And then it's got this little sugar hanging off on the bottom right side as we draw it. And it turns out that little sugar in the structure is playing a critical role in binding the sterols. And what we found was one spot on that sugar, if we just changed it in a very subtle way, we in fact just changed the position of one of the functional groups. Instead of pointing down, we got it to point up. And when we did that, we discovered that we could still bind ergosterol, but no longer bind cholesterol. And if you look in now this, the high resolution structure, we can rationalize exactly why that's true and understand that and reinforce that change as the critical way to get rid of the cholesterol binding. That compound showed no toxicity to human cells, whether in the flat, you know, in, in vitro, we can test against many different types of human cells, including kidney cells. We actually just couldn't see tox. Even the highest concentrations we tested, we couldn't see any toxicity. And then we also tested it in mice and it showed the same thing. Okay. It was very friendly to the mammalian cells and looked like a virtually non-toxic derivative. Okay. Which was great, but we also lost our potency. So it was still killing the fungal cells, but it was doing it much less well. And there were some strains where it looked pretty good, but then other strains where it looked really bad. And as I mentioned at the beginning, one of the best things about amphotericin, it kind of works for everything and you don't always know what's causing the infection. And so this lack of very potent broad spectrum activity was a big problem. And so we knew we had made a big step forward, but we knew we weren't yet done. What did you have to do next? The second step, how do we keep the lack of toxicity, how do we get our potency back? Okay, this was the challenge. So the first thing we'd say, well, now we have the structure and we can think about the sterile binding. Let's just try to increase the binding to ergosterol. But every time we looked for ways to do that, it was clear that if we try to increase the physical binding of ergosterol, we're probably going to start binding cholesterol. This was the problem. So we were kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. If we're only thinking in three dimensions, there wasn't really a clear path. So then there was a very exciting kind of thought and discovery that the rate of the extraction of the ergosterol mattered a lot in terms of the potency. Okay. This was really an important advance in which we now knew that it wasn't necessarily just a three-dimensional problem. We kind of had a four-dimensional problem in which we could think about speed as critical to the potency. And so our focus became, how do we speed up the ergosterol extraction? And an extremely talented postdoc in my lab, Arun Maji, uh, figured out there was a certain spot on the molecule where if we made certain types of changes, the extraction of ergosterol got faster and faster. And so remarkably, uh, he then took that increased speed move and the decreased binding move and put them together into one molecule and called that AM2-19. And that compound is very effective, broad spectrum antifungal, and it did not get any back of the toxicity. So it's a remarkably non-toxic and very effective antifungal uh, that we're very hopeful and excited about. So in the in vivo portion of the study that you guys just published at the beginning of November, it looked like you tested four different strains of fungi in the mice. How did you decide which ones to test? And walk me through your logic there. Studies that are reported in the paper focus on these invasive fungal infections that are very common, things like aspergillus, 
which gets into your lungs and unfortunately causes an invasive fungal infection in your airways. And it's very difficult to treat. And so one of the reasons we spend a lot of time thinking about that one is there's very little else that can be effective in the clinic. So it's a big unmet medical need because the resistance to the other types of antifungals is unfortunately very high. And so this is an indication that still amphotericin gets used in the clinic because unfortunately, sometimes it's the last resort and one of the only things that can be used. Aspergillus is an example of what's called a mold as opposed to a yeast. And molds are sometimes much tougher to kill than the yeast, such as candida, for example. And so another one that is in that same category is mucor. And that was why we also studied the, the infection, because again, there's just not a lot of other medicines that are very effective against some of these really tough mold-based invasive fungal infections. And we thought that was a really important thing to demonstrate that this compound can be effective in those very challenging clinical indications. How did you all go about testing resistance, whether the fungi develop resistance to the drug over time? The standard assay that you do in vitro is you expose the fungi to sub-lethal doses of the compound. So you give it some of the compound, but not enough to kill it. You pretty much let it grow in the presence of a sublethal dose of the antifungal. And then you take the fungi that survive that exposure and you clean them up and then expose them again. And then you repeat. So this is actually kind of a process by which you're giving them the chance to try to survive in the presence of the antifungal. And the ones that survive get passed on and do it again and again. And when you do that, what you often see is that resistance will emerge over the course of that experiment. Amphotericin is really special because it's rare to see resistance emerge. And in fact, interestingly, when it does in the kind of culture flask, usually those fungi have become very unfit, meaning they can no longer cause infection. And we think this is probably what's happening in people is they can try to change. In fact, what they do is they try to change their sterols, it looks like, to evade the sponge but when they change their sterols, they mess up a bunch of other parts of their biology and they become very weak. And then they're easy to kill if you put them into an animal, for example. And so in general, resistance to amphotericin is very rare. And what we showed by doing this with amphotericin, we re reproduced that and showed that was definitely true also in our hands. And then we compared that to 219. And it was at least, if not more, resistance evasive than amphotericin, which was a great result. This is really interesting to me because it, it did occur to me that maybe one of the reasons that more resistance hasn't developed to amphotericin is because it's reserved for the most dire cases, that it, we just simply don't use it enough for it to develop resistance. But it sounds like it's really something mechanistic going on. Of course, we don't know because you're right. There is a somewhat limited use of amphotericin because of its toxicity. But that said, because unfortunately, it's usually the only thing that could work, it's actually used a lot and has been for like 50 years or more. So I think most of the evidence points towards the latter, that this is an inherently resistance evasive compound. And in fact, it looks like the whole family probably has this feature. And it's interesting if you think about, again, we go back to the bacteria and the fungi battling it out in the soil to try to compete for the nutrients, right, over hundreds of millions of years. The bacteria is going to want to find a way for the fungi to not become resistant, right, to their chemical warfare agent. And it looks like in this case, they found something special. There's just something about the mechanism of how amphotericin works, which we think is inherently resistance evasive. In this case, it looks like it's because, first, it's not just 
a small molecule binding to like one protein target. That's how most drugs work, right? And then it's actually kind of easy for the resistance to happen because the bug just changes its protein and then the drug no longer binds and then it gets resistance. That's oftentimes, unfortunately, how we get resistance with antimicrobials. The same thing with cancer drugs. It's a very common mechanism. Here, you have the small molecule not binding to a protein, but actually self-assembling into this higher order complex where the whole becomes greater than the sum of its parts and acts like this higher order sponge. And interestingly, it's physically extracting not a protein, but a small molecule. This is a small molecule targeting another small molecule, which is very rare. And the small molecule is critical for the fungal physiology. It needs that compound. And so it has a very hard time becoming resistant because if it tries to change its small molecule, it becomes unfit and then it's easy to kill. And if it doesn't change its small molecule, it dies from the sponge. So it looks like nature found a way to evade resistance, which is a very important lesson. It tells us that resistance is not inevitable. All of this is obviously great news for the compound that came out of your research, which I believe is S now in phase one clinical trials under a company that you founded. Tell me about that company and a little bit about where that drug is in the development pipeline. Sure. I'm a founder for Sfunga Therapeutics. And full disclosure, I'm also a shareholder and used to be a, a receiver of consulting income, et cetera. Uh, I've actually passed the baton now, so I'm no longer actually with the company because it's sometimes exciting to get these things to that stage, then run back to the lab and try to work on uh, additional challenges and problems. The company was funded by Deerfield Management, which is a great uh, investment group out of New York. Uh, Jim Flynn is the head of the fund. And to their credit, this this group took a risk. They took a chance to actually fund a, an antifungal project, which is, as you know, it's like it's a challenging area to get uh, venture and basic science and pathways to the clinic all to line up. Uh, and so very much to their credit, they took a shot and, and really invested and allowed us to get this compound to the point where it could get to a clinical trial. Fantastic team at Sfunga Therapeutics was able to come together and do all the preclinical work. There's a lot of things that we can do in our lab, and then there's a whole bunch of other things that have to be done in order to get a compound to the point where it can enter into a clinical trial. And that's where spinning out a company can be very effective because the, the biotech industry in the United States is a very powerful engine for taking things that look promising and turning them into actual real drug candidates. And so Sfunga was able to do that. Just one note, the name Sfunga, it comes from the Greek word Sfungari, which is actually the, the Greek word for sponge. Okay. So it also kind of sounds like fungal infection treatments. And so it actually worked really well. My wife is Greek. And so I lo- this is where it inspired the connection to the Greek name. And so, yeah, so the company was able to bring it all the way. And as you mentioned, and they've announced publicly, it's very exciting that SF001 has now entered clinical trials and is currently being tested in healthy volunteers in a phase one clinical study. A lot of drugs fail in clinical trials. And so we're very humble, but also very hopeful. You know, there's a lot of very strong signs that this compound could make an important impact. And we're crossing all our fingers and toes and hoping that pans out. Let's fast forward to a hypothetical future where the drug does make it through all three phases of development. I'm curious how much it costs to develop a drug like this and how that cost would compare to amphotericin B. Unfortunately, I'm not going to have all those answers for you today because it's still very much at the early stages and it is going to take time and it's probably also going to take a lot more investment to get this to go all the way through. And it's a challenge to figure out how to develop new medicines better, faster, stronger, and cheaper so that we can ultimately get as much access as possible. I think in this case, we're off to a really good start because the kind of small nuco strategy, as opposed to a big, large pharma, 
we can stay very lean and mean. And so, you know, in this case, we were able to actually bring this compound up to a point where entering clinical trials pretty efficiently from a cost perspective. But to be fair, it still has a long way to go. How do you imagine this drug being prescribed? As in, do you anticipate that like amphotericin B, it also would be reserved for kind of the most serious cases? I think our hope has been that if it proves to be true in the clinic, that this compound does all the good stuff amphotericin can do, but is no longer toxic, it would not have to be a last resort. It could be a very effective therapy so that people who get into this very tough situation have a very real opportunity to cure their infection. How could these findings apply to the development of other antimicrobials? If we can learn from how we were able to solve this specific problem and the basic science that got exposed along the way, can we bring those lessons to better develop other antimicrobial agents and not even just antifungals? I think there's important lessons here to be learned about how to develop resistance evasive, non-toxic microbials. And there are hints, actually, that other compounds, including antibiotics, might be working through this same sponge-like mechanism. And so we're pretty hopeful. Uh, we're going to intensely continue to try to work on this and test this hypothesis that this mechanism is actually quite general. And if that proves to be the case, and we can get better and better understanding at the you know, molecular scale how all these things work, you could enter a space where you could start to rationally design molecules that kind of self-assemble into these higher order aggregates and do really interesting, important things, and thereby imagine better medicines that operate in more sophisticated ways that can do their job, evade resistance, not be toxic, and hopefully solve a lot of important, challenging problems. We think there's some really important basic findings that came out of this study that help start to chart a path in that direction. And we and lots of other labs all over the world, I'm sure, are going to continue to kind of work in that direction. It occurs to me that this finding, this discovery of this drug is, is a big win for basic science. Tell me a little bit about how funding basic science and investing in basic science makes discoveries like this possible. Why is this so important? I really like this question because it gives me a chance to thank all the U.S. taxpayers who uh, ultimately fund the NIH and the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease which was the primary funder of this research. And in fact, the NIH has been funding this research for almost 20 years. And I think it really points out something really critically important. When we as society invest in basic research, and this is through NIH and NSF and other mechanisms, many times really important kind of basic discoveries can ultimately lead to things like new medicines. And so it's such a great demonstration of how investment in basic research through the NIH can actually help move things uh, in that direction. Dr. Burke, it has been a pleasure speaking with you. This is really exciting research and congratulations. Looking forward to seeing what happens next. Thank you so much uh, for the time spent together and, and for taking the time to share the story with the community. And let's continue to invest in really good basic science that helps these needles move forward. Thank you for listening to The Top Line. I'm Ayla Ellison. For more information on the topics in this episode, check out the show notes at fiercepharma.com. And that's the bottom line from the top line.